And it is what's involved one more time and uh, a special guest. Goodness me, have we been trying to actually get to talk to each other? I don't know. It's been, it's been years. And, and the worst part of the years thing is when we eventually got our act together and decided we were going to go and have copious amounts of tequila. Then the Rona came. So we didn't. My guest is Deborah Harting. Hello, Deborah. Hi, Dave. How are you? I am well. I am well. And I'm so glad we eventually got to do this, even though it's kind of virtually. Yeah, and even though it's not over tequila, right? Yeah, I should have thought about it. I mean, we could have, we could have done remote tequila. It is, it is still allowed, I believe. Uh, but never mind. I suppose, you know, non-tequila, non-tequila interviews make for, for more, I don't know. Probably uh, better radio. Yeah, probably. You know, I'm not convinced, but you know, we'll we'll take that as a as an excuse. So tell me, Deborah Harting, what what is where do you where does Deborah come from? Tell me a little bit about uh, your background, growing up, education, that kind of thing. Oh wow, um, that's a that's a question I wasn't expecting. So so yes, yeah, so Deborah Harting is um, is actually a nice Pretoria, Macy. So um, born in Cape Town. So you know how everyone always has to say they were born in Cape Town. Like we can all lay claim to the mountain. You know, our ancestry goes all the way back to the mountain. So <laughs> born in Cape Town, raised in Pretoria. Um, interesting thing that a lot of people don't know about me, only my friends know this, is that I went to Afrikaans schools. So young Deborah Ann Hartung, ginger as she is, um, was sent to Afrikaans schools in the early 80s. And I could barely speak Afrikaans. And I think that experience, you know, you don't think about it at the time, but experiences like that really do shape who we become. And I think to a certain extent, it has shaped a lot of tenacity in me and a lot of, you know, um, I think also understanding the concept of not fitting in and kind of having a foot in either culture. Um, so, so that's been an interesting ride and I speak fluent Afrikaans. Um, and when I'm with some of my friends from high school and varsity, you would honestly swear that I'm a nice Buddha Macy. And then, you know, and all my friends call me Debbie for that reason, because of course, you know, Deborah was just a little bit impronounceable with the very German surname as well in Afrikaans schools. That's amazing because my, my story is, is, is a little sort of different to that. I mean, being a, a Benoni boy, born and bred, um, I'm now living in Pretoria and I'm engaged to a lovely, lovely Afrikaans lady. So I've learned, I've learned Afrikaans. I'm not nearly as fluent as you in it, but I, I know how to beg in Afrikaans now. So it's cool. Well, you only need to really know that, you know, how to say <laughs> please and thank you. And then you're on your way in any language. <laughs> Please, thank you, and yes, dear, the secret to a happy life. <laughs> exactly. And no, no, no. And you're right. And I'm sorry, David. I'm sorry, and you were right. So those are the other two. All right. Got it. Got it. So now, you grew up, you went to varsity. What did you study? Interestingly, I studied international relations. I had very big dreams for myself of joining the diplomatic service and traveling the world and helping to mend relationships and I don't know advancing world peace so 19 year old Deborah Ann Hartung was very idealistic and shall we say naive 
Mm, okay. So yes. And uh, how I landed up in, in the career that I've landed up in, interestingly, is that I got fired. Not from the diplomatic service, don't worry. They, they never hired me in the first place. I mean, I don't know why, because I'm delightful, obviously. Yes, um, absolutely. And, and obviously, I would have also, I think, being almost six feet tall and being ginger, and I think I would have really made a very good spy. I think I would have really, like, you know, just blended into the background and, and not being noticeable at all. So I'm deeply hurt about my career that never took off as a spy. Well, um, but lost. yes, I got fired and, um, and I landed up actually working in employee relations. I landed up working for the labor lawyers who I had approached to assist me with, with my, my woes. Okay. And then? <laughs> and then I learned lots and lots of stuff about employee relations and labor law and some really hardcore litigation and union negotiations and strikes and a lot of time spent at the CCMA and a lot of traveling and a lot of people dismissed for misconduct and a lot of people fired. And, um, and after that, actually, I moved into, into retail where I did pretty much the same work. And then I moved into financial services and I had an HRGM who knew that the company needed some help from an employee relations perspective, but she very much believed that there wouldn't be enough work for me and, um, and made me a generalist and made me part of a bigger team. And that was really, I think, the turning point where I learned so much more about HR than I'd learned at Varsity. And I learned that there's so many different dimensions to people and there's, there's usually a story behind the story. You know, when you work in employee relations and, and you're appointed as a chairperson to preside over a hearing, you, you don't really get to know the person. You know, you're only dealing with one aspect of them, which is oftentimes one of the worst things that they've ever done in their lives at work. And, and you've now been called in to adjudicate this and to decide whether they get to keep their job or whether they're going to join the unemployment line. And you don't actually get to see everything that led up to that happening. And, you know, you don't see the full picture. So I think working in financial services and working in HR as a generalist very much made me mindful of these things. And I think it softened me around the edges to a large extent. And then the final blow to that harsh exterior for me was getting married and having kids. That's really softened me the most. It's, um, it's tamed the beast, as it were. Yeah, you think you're rough and tough until you have kids and suddenly they go, who's in charge here? And you say it fervently, me, and they go, well, would you believe that's going to change? <laughs> exactly. And all of those things that you say, you know, I will never or my kids will never. Um, yeah, that all goes out the window too. All right. So you, 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 you had a company um, which was Harting Associates. Is that still yes. running or, or, or have you moved on to, to the new one now? Well, Harting Associates has kind of been rebranded and it's, it's Deborah Hartung Inc. And, and basically what that company does is a lot of consulting work um, and, and change management work, project-based stuff, culture change, you know, 
um, leadership development training and coaching, those kinds of things. So, so that's still going. That's been going for 12 years, which I'm, I'm, I'm very blessed to be able to say, I think, especially in this climate. And then I also started another company um, about three years ago, which is more of a digital business. And it's a little bit in limbo right now, I think, as many others are. Um, and, and that business was really aimed at providing affordable HR and labor relations solutions for SMEs and startups. So a lot of the work that we do, I'm, I'm sorry, you know, and, and some of my colleagues are, are going to murder me, but it really isn't rocket science and, and I can teach you how to do it yourself. You don't have to pay thousands and thousands. And that's why I started the business. You can, you can literally spend an hour with me and I can teach you the basics and, and give you a couple of, you know, um, editable documents to download and you can do it yourself and not mess it up. Wow. Okay. That's not something I expected uh, to come out. But uh, when we come back, let's let's talk a little bit about uh, your passion, because one of the things I'm very well aware of is you love working with entrepreneurs, young leaders, startups, that kind of thing. So when we come back, yes. uh, we're going to be chatting uh, a little bit more about that. My special guest is Deborah Harting this morning. It is What's Involved. And we're back with uh, what's involved. My special guest is uh, Deborah Harting. So talk to me about your passion for, for entrepreneurs. And because, you know, a lot of people, if they looked at, at, at your background and they saw Deborah, you know, was, was in the HR, is in the HR field, they're going to go tough as nails, hard exterior, doesn't care about us. And yet the Deborah I know is the exact opposite. <laughs> yes. Don't tell people. Damn it, David. <laughs> <laughs> so, so yes, my, my passion for entrepreneurs and, and for young leaders specifically, I think, comes from a place of deep empathy. I think for myself, um, from the very first job that I held, I was always the youngest person in that role or the youngest person in the room or the only woman at the boardroom table. And, you know, I, I very much have that understanding for feeling like um, there aren't people that you can turn to for help and assistance and feeling out of your depth. And I think that sense of imposter syndrome that follows all of us around, no matter how old we are, um, I'm very empathetic towards that. And my passion for entrepreneurs and young leaders specifically comes from that place of, you know, you just need someone to believe in you. And, and one of the biggest challenges that young leaders and entrepreneurs face is that they have the passion, they have the ability, they have a dream, a vision, they're willing to work hard. And one of their biggest weaknesses, unfortunately, is while they're chasing that passion and that dream, is they're not very good at doing the people stuff. Or they get caught up in managing and not in leading. Um, or they don't know how to, you know, create that divide between being friendly with you and having a really great working relationship, but not being your friend and letting you get away with murder. Because those are the kinds of things that ultimately create our workplace culture. So for me, it's a big passion of mine to work with young leaders just starting out their first kind of supervisory team leadership management type of role. So young leaders, entrepreneurs, just starting out because I believe that we can change the world if we get to people soon enough. If I help them 
to empower them, to equip them with the skills that they need to really lead people and change and, you know, create places where people want to work. It's going to change the world. I would agree with you. And the, the, the interesting thing is, you know, in my past and in, the, in my background, you know, specifically in terms of, of corporates, the, the culture there, well, there wasn't so much a culture as a, as a dictatorship for a very long time. Yes. And it was, it was this whole sort of ranking thing. So if you were the lowliest of the low employees, you know, um, and you had people maybe in positions above you that you, that I certainly, when I was doing it, would sit and think, I don't know what you're doing there because you're plumbing useless, but they'd been there for 30 years. Um, and, mm -hmm. and, you know, in those days, it was all about the company, not the people. You were a number if you worked in a, in a large organization. That's completely. slowly changing. Would you agree? I would definitely agree with you. And I mean, I've seen it happening and evolving over the last, especially the last, I would say, 10 to 15 years. I've seen that process speeding up. But by my estimation, it's just not happening fast enough. And I think there's, there's a couple of reasons for that. And that's really one of the main reasons that led me to developing the methodology that I have and, and to writing my book. Um, and, you know, just to, to kind of extrapolate on that a little bit, I think a lot of our beliefs about work, as you say, David, it's about the company, right? It's about profits. It's about productivity. It's what can you do for us and our definition of success and high performance and being the best is the people who can do the most work or the best work, you know, the, the top salesperson. Um, and oftentimes those people just so happen to be not very nice people to work with or to work for. But we turn a blind eye to the human side of things because, oh, they're making us so much money. Mm. Yeah, and this is, but this is one of the things because you talk, and I know that, that HR runs in your blood, and, it, and, it, and in the title, Human Resources, uh, but we don't seem to, to have much interest in the human part of the resources. As I said, you, you become no, more like, like numbers. A resource. <laughs> you become a resource that, you know, um, when, when your paper in the office runs out, you buy more paper. And that's the way that we've been treating our people as well. Um, when we work David into, um, you know, an early grave or we work him out of the company because he just can't cope anymore, we just replace him with the next youngster who will come in all bright eyed and bushy tailed. And, you know, I think one of the things that we need to realize as, as business and HR leaders is that people give us literally the best hours of their day the best years of their life and they make us all of this money and they help us provide goods and services. And the least that we can do is, is help them to self-actualize. And interestingly, the more that we actually do that, the better they perform and the happier they are and the longer they stay. Which all makes sense, but it, it, it doesn't seem that, that, that people are doing it. And now we, we, we sort of, in the middle of, I don't know, I don't know anymore where we are, but, but this fourth industrial revolution that, that people talk about and, you know, where they go, the robots are going to take over, we're all losing our jobs. I think in the world at this specific time, 
we need more humanity, not less. Completely. And you know, for me, I'm, I am very excited about the things that I see happening in the world of work, specifically around automation. So my approach is not one of fear and the robots are taking over our jobs. What the robots are able to do is to take over the mundane, repetitive, transactional tasks. And what that frees us up to do is what I call augmented humanity. So that gives us the, the bandwidth for a nice corporate weasel word for you. Um, it gives us the bandwidth and the ability to actually start focusing on humanity and on, you know, if you look at Maslow's hierarchy of needs, we can start focusing on the self-actualization stuff because you're not caught up anymore doing the day-to-day, -day, you know, you're not data capturing. Um, because thanks to technology, we, we input that data once and it can propagate across numerous different systems. Um, and, and suddenly you've got some time on your hands. And I'm hoping that we're going to use that time to actually be more human and to do more meaningful, purpose-driven work. Now, that's brilliant. But if I think about it in terms of, of, of worldwide, um, there are changes. And, and, and particularly with, with Corona, we may talk about that. But you are, and you're very modest about this, but you are considered um, a global HR thought leader. Um, and I know it's a, it's a mantle <laughs> yeah. you don't wear comfortably at the moment. Not at all. <laughs> no. But you worked with Disrupt HR, Hacking HR. Uh, what is that all about? So both of those movements are indeed global movements, and they are all about creating the future of HR and the future of work and, you know, trying to break free from the shackles of what HR is known as and, and what HR is really known as, to be honest and fair, is actually personnel management. You know, if you think back to the olden days, it's, it was a bunch of people sitting with rows and rows of gray filing cabinets, capturing data and getting people paid and, you know, de decreeing policies from up high and managing consequences when people don't conform and don't obey. And what Disrupt HR is about and Hacking HR as well is really about creating the best HR that's ever existed, um, bringing the human back into HR, looking at the future of work and ways of working, really bringing in engagement and culture and you know, human potential into the mix. And I'm very fortunate, yes, I don't wear the label comfortably um, because I think the whole term influencer or, you know, thought leader is, is almost a hollow term in today's day and age um, because every second person considers themselves an influencer. But I'm very thankful for the opportunity that I get to, to work with global companies and to also work with global technology partners and other consulting organizations because it really opens up, you know, our, our eyes and it gives us this, this lens into the world. And interestingly, here in South Africa, we might be behind the times with many things at work. But one of the things that we can take to the world is our approach to diversity and inclusion and equity at work. And that's really one of the things that, that global leaders and HR leaders are looking to us 
um, to help them with at this point in time. Well, that is a breath of fresh air because, you know, I'm so used to South Africa being on the uh, bottom end of the scale. Uh, I want to talk more about where we are in South Africa and, and the need for HR when we come back. My special guest is Deborah Harting. This is What's Involved. We will be back in just a bit. And we're back with Deborah Harting. It is What's Involved. So good to have you along with us. Deborah, just before the break, we were we were going to talk about, I said, I wanted to talk a bit about where we stand with HR, because you've just said that people are looking to South Africa in terms of, of what we can do. And yet on the outside, you know, for somebody who's not in the know, looking at South Africa, we go, it's a mess. I mean, there's autocrats, there's all sorts of nasty things happening. Where do we stand in terms of HR in this country? Look, that's a that's a very loaded question, and I, you know, as I said, I think to a large extent we're a little bit behind on many of the things, um, and I think that very much stems from our history in terms of um, having migrant workforce and and feeling that need to control people, you know, and but that's not something that's unique to South Africa. That that almost unhealthy parent-child relationship and, you know, companies wanting to install monitoring software on your computer now to check that while you're at work during corona time that you're actually working even though you're at home, um, that, that is a global phenomenon and, and that's something that we really need to work to change and to challenge the beliefs around if you're not watching me then I'm not working, you know, to give people the freedom to work how how and where and when it works for them. So we are a little bit, I would say, behind in, in many respects, behind the UK, for instance, um, in, in, in that regard. We're also a little bit behind specifically in terms of wellness and mental health at work. And again, that is, I think, partly a cultural thing in our country. And this is something that we find across all of our race groups is a little bit of stigma still attached to mental health and wellness. So in that regard, we've, we've got a lot of work to do. You know, in the UK, so many companies have got formal mental health at work programs. They've got people who are trained up to be what they call mental health first aid um, practitioners. You know, so literally colleagues who can intervene and spot you and say, you know, Debs, I, it looks to me like you're taking some strain and, you know, and just kind of help you through it before the burnout sets in. Um, so we, we, we've got a ways to go there. But in terms of the equity and the diversity, there's a lot that the rest of the world can learn from us um, in terms of just our approach to, um, to a large extent, having legislated certain things um, and, and having enforced that. So a lot of countries have got legislation about equal pay for women, for instance, or for minorities, but they're not enforcing it. So that's something that the rest of the world is looking at us for. And the other thing, of course, that the rest of the world is looking at us for is how we manage to transform our organizations from mostly white and male, you know, at, in the late 90s, even early 2000s, how we've managed to transform our organizations and what we've done in terms of closing that gap, um, you know, from, from a talent and a skills perspective. So, you know, what are we doing to identify young talent? And that's literally kids in high school already. And then take them through, you know, training them up 
upskilling them and, and bringing them into the workplace? And what are we doing to keep people engaged? Um, and what are we doing to create a, a workplace where things are just diverse and equal? And it's not because there's consequences and it's not because we're chasing numbers, you know. And again, there, we, we've still got some work to do, but everyone globally has got some work to do in that space. All right, so leading on from that then, where do we stand in, in terms of if somebody's listening uh, to this broadcast right now and they're a, 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 maybe a, a small company, a couple of employees and maybe a medium-sized company, where does HR start? Where would we need to start thinking about things like company culture, et cetera? Honestly, David, and, and I love that question, and, and this is why I love working with entrepreneurs and young leaders, because your culture starts actually the minute you start your business. And what people don't realize is that the founders um, and the shareholders bring so much of their personality into an organization. So if you're a very um, conservative thinker, you don't like taking risks, you, you, know, you prefer hierarchy, you prefer structure, um, it's, it's kind of tough being a startup you know, and, and working in an agile way. And, and what we find is the minute you hire your first person and you need to start setting up a structure, you're going to default to hierarchy and policy and ticking boxes. It's not going to be that easy for you to start the next Google, you know? So your company culture really actually starts the minute you decide to start your business, even if it's just you. Very good point. But now in, in terms of what you offer to, to people, um, if people are listening and they, they're in that position where they kind of just started, because I know a lot of times when you, if, you, if you're a startup for whatever reason, um, you know, the first thing is you bring in Uncle Jimmy and Auntie Flo used to do the books for so-and-so and your brother needs nice. a job. So you, you bring all of them in um, because at the time it seems easier. And then as that business grows, it becomes quite challenging having those people working with you. Uh, what do you play in that sort of field? So if I'm, if I'm, I, I got a small company and I'm like, I, I'm totally confused now. I don't know what to do. Auntie Flo is now running the joint and you know, she's got a bit of a drinking problem, but I, I don't even know if I could get rid of her. What do we do? <laughs> do? Do you come in there? Would you help businesses like that? Oh, completely. So yes. So I think the important thing for our listeners to, to remember here is that culture isn't something that, that happens like great cultures don't happen by accident right culture becomes the worst thing that we are willing to tolerate so you know you're joking now about auntie flo and, and her potential drinking problem you know and uncle bill who's always been a little bit handsy with the ladies um and and we tend to downplay those things and whether they're family members or friends from varsity that we start this business with or they're someone we hired off the street um when we allow those things when we tolerate those things they become part of our everyday culture and that's really how the toxic cultures get off the ground and and how they get maintained but the minute we start to challenge those things when when we speak up and we speak out and we ask questions about it, 
that's when things change. So the work that I do, and I mean, obviously it's across the board and, and here in South Africa, you know, global experts are always telling us to niche down. And, and I know you've been told this as well. Choose one thing that you specialize in, choose one market. But the problem is that, you know, if we do that, a lot of the time we can't really entirely survive in this country. So we kind of have to diversify. And I'm in a very fortunate position that my background in employee relations and labor law enables me to do that. So to come back to your example about Auntie Flo with her potential drinking problem is my first advice would be if you're starting a business is number one, don't default to hiring people. Number one is please do some research and see what can be outsourced and what can be automated. And I know a lot of people are going to hate me for saying this, but it really is your safest bet because your core business isn't the finance side and doing the books. So if it's not part of your core business and the thing that makes you money, you need to look at whether you can outsource it um, or whether you can automate it and, and effectively do it yourself until you can afford to outsource it or to, to get someone. The second thing that I would advise is honestly understand that you craft your culture. And I've actually got a lovely program that I run called Crafting Your Culture as a startup or scale up. See, shameless plug right there. Um, I love shameless plugs. (laughs) So I I have this program and, and basically we start, no matter where you are in your journey, we can start. The best time to have started crafting your culture was on day one. The next best time is to start doing it today. And we go and look at, you know, your personality and and what you want your culture to be and what you want it to stand for. And then we start looking at what makes your business unique and we craft your values for you and we define your values, you know, because values like innovation, for instance, that means something different to a Google than it means to you and I starting up a small career company, you know? So it's really about going to define your values then and and then infusing those values throughout the entire organization in terms of how we hire people, how we make decisions, um, just just our way of being and our, our, our way of doing things. It, it becomes all of that. And if we need to fire on flow, you know, um, we, we actually can. If her drinking is starting to impact her ability to do the job, then, then yes, there's a process that we can follow that the law allows for. Fantastic stuff. My special guest is Deborah Harting, and uh, this is what's involved. When we come back, we'll be wrapping up with Deborah and finding out uh, what we can do now and if Deborah's got any advice to us, any steps that we should take. And I believe there's a book we need to talk about as well. All of that and more when we come back. We're back. It is what's involved. Wrapping it up with my special guest, Deborah Harting. So, Deborah, are there things, because I know you, you're, you're very much a giver in this sense. Is there something that you're going to be offering to, to the listeners? And then talk to me about the book as well. Okay. So yes, I will definitely be offering the listeners something. Um, after my shameless plug, I will definitely be offering this to them. Um, so yes, the book is, um, is actually hitting the virtual bookshelves, the ebook readers on the 31st of August. It is called Talent Liberation, the Blueprint to Performance Management in the New World of Work. And what the book is really about is 
how by making a couple of small changes to the way that we manage performance and some of the other little things that we do along the way, how just making a couple of small changes can improve workplace culture, employee engagement, and profits and performance and productivity. So we can literally get it all by just making a couple of small changes. Fantastic stuff. The book will be available then on, on all sorts of digital platforms, I'm assuming. Yes, and the paperback will be coming out a month later. Um, so building a little bit of buzz and seeing how the book does. And um, there was a brief moment a couple of weeks ago in pre-sales when, um, when one could call oneself an Amazon number one best-selling author and not wow. in a dodgy category like camel milk recipes for lactose intolerant people. Um, it was actually in the business section. So, so yes, one, one can call oneself a best-selling author at this point, which is, which is also kind of cool. That's very, very good to hear. So what are you offering to, to anybody that's listening to the show that's, that's sort of sitting in this pit now and going, oh, I don't know what to do and I don't know how to get out. How, do you, how would you help people like that? So what I would offer is, um, firstly, buy the book. It's super affordable. It's literally under 200 bucks for you. So buy the book and read through it and start challenging some of your beliefs around work and productivity and people and motivation. Um, so the book is not a textbook. It's written almost as if you're reading a series of, of blog posts or articles. And it's, it's very, um, you know, practical and how can I help you? So definitely read the book and, and start implementing some of those things. And if you care about your culture and, you know, maybe you're at the point, maybe your business has been going, and I know businesses like this, that have been going for more than 20 years and don't have a formal set of values and can't actually describe their culture. So if you're in that space or you're perhaps a startup or you want to know more about how to actually create an amazing workplace culture and how your personality as the founder, the CEO actually impacts all of this. I'm giving away to all the listeners um, and we'll, we'll drop the link. I'm sure in the, in the episode notes um, for the podcast, I am giving away free access to my craft your culture as a startup or scale up program. And this is literally um, a couple of hours with me teaching you how to do it yourself. All the tools that I use, giving you access to those for free, um, talking you through it, giving you all the templates and the tools that you need to actually start on a good foundation and then build forth on that using the tips in my book. I think that is phenomenal. Thank you. That is, that is very kind and very generous of you. Uh, the book is oh, called... The book is called Talent Liberation, the Blueprint for Performance Management in the New World of Work. And thank goodness you never used new normal once in this discussion because <laughs> I would have torn my hair out. Um, the book, is that available on your website as well? Um, it is not available for sale through my website, um, but there are links. You can visit deborahartung.com and there are links to take you. And you can literally purchase this book. And I've had a couple of local folks in South Africa saying, oh, I don't have a Kindle. I don't have this. There are apps for those things, folks. You download the app for free on your phone and you can buy books, any book, in the Kindle store or Barnes & Noble or Kobo and you can read them on your phone. It's super cool. It is fantastic. And uh, yeah, I 
got a long story about myself and uh, you know printed matter, which I used to love, and then got the Kindle and became an absolute raving convert. So definitely, definitely well worth it. Deborah, we, we, we're running out of time, and I think the book is going to be absolutely fantastic. For those listening now, what, what one piece of advice would you give somebody that is maybe sitting with an HR problem now? I know my first response would be called Deborah, but what is yours? Um, well, besides, besides call Deborah, my first response is stop procrastinating. Because whatever the problem is, sometimes you think it's not that big a deal. Sometimes you think nothing can be done about it. Um, no matter what it is that you think, if it is gnawing away at you and bugging you and causing you even five minutes of taking your mind off of um, your business and, and, and your purpose, then speak to a professional. Ask for help and, and take action. Because again, like I said earlier, your culture becomes the worst things that you're willing to tolerate. And no one starts out being an absolute horrible boss. It always starts out with something small, something niggly that we let slide. That is so true. And I remember um, when I was employing uh, various staff members, I had a graphic designer. Um, and during the course of, of, of the, to the time that uh, the graphic designer worked with me, uh, they they had a bit of a drinking problem. There was a bit of a, a narcotics problem as well. What happened at the end of the day, it cost me a whole lot of money to get this person to actually leave purely because I'd, I'd, I'd my whole approach was, you know, I trust you. Let's, let's all be friends. This is a friendly place, a friendly place of work. I trust that you will be doing the work you should do. Uh, and I had no policies. And I tell you what, it was an absolute nightmare. Unfortunately, it is. And, and, and the other piece of advice following on from what you've said now, David, is, you know, being, being direct and being honest is kind. We're not actually being kind when we don't give people candid feedback when we don't set boundaries, when we don't make it clear what is expected, we're actually not being kind. There's a, there's a very big um, gap between kindness and empathy and, and being candid and, and then having people, you know, kind of take, take us for a ride. And, and most people, you know, you're not micromanaging by setting clear boundaries and, you know, again, like I said, when, when we speak up about something, when we challenge it, that's when we change it. Mm, very, very wise words. Before I let you go, Deborah Harting, um, the, the website to find out all the info about yourself and uh, about the book is DebraHarting.com. That is correct. Thanks, David. So Deborah, D-E-B-O-D-E-B-O-R-A-H. <laughs> Yes. Goodness me. Suddenly I was, I was uh, hitting a blank there. You just can't beat a good education. <laughs> uh, DebraHarting.com. As you're about to uh, step out of the interview, what's next for Deborah Harting? Well, very, very exciting. Um, working on the Talent Liberation Masterclass. So it's a whole course that's being developed. Um, and working with people who are much smarter than me around 
actually, you know, making the book even more accessible and more practical and training up more people and apparently changing the world of work. So, so exciting and, um, and somewhat intimidating at the same time. Oh, we wish you all the best. And uh, I'm glad we had this chat. It's taken long enough, but I think it happened right when it needed to. Thanks, David. I, I totally agree with you. There we go. That Tequila was my... next time. Ooh, ooh, she said tequila. <laughs> <laughs> that was my special guest, Deborah Harting. Uh, don't forget, you can check out all the info on Deborah. Uh, and I know that she's always willing to, to, to give some advice, lend an ear. It's DebraHarting.com. And that wraps it up for this edition of What's Involved. <laughs>